Well, Happy New Year. I know that would have been more appropriate last week, but I wasn't here last week, and I looked at the numbers, and neither were you. So uh, <laughs> particularly in this service, I just got to tell you. But it's good to be back. You know, it's good to get away for a while. You feel like after the holidays, you need to recharge your battery a little bit or maybe a lot. You know, it's like on zero, and you've got to get it back up because you've got to start the new year, man. And the new year is in a time of excitement. So it's good to be gone. It's good to come back. It's good to put the kids back in school. Let's just be honest creates a little space. Some of the moms now get to take a shower and do kind of those kind of things again. And it's nice to gather together with you guys back in this room and begin this new year together. So I want to talk a little bit about the new year as we start it together at the beginning of this message. But before I do that, I want to look back on last year. And the part of last year that I want to look back on for all that we could talk about was our goal. It was our theme. It was our stated point of emphasis. It was our mantra. And because it excites me so much to hear you say it, I want to hear you say it. All right, I'm going to start it and like with enthusiasm. If all you brought today was a mumble, don't even play, okay? But if you feel like I do, that God came and took a little mantra, an idea, a concept from His Word, and He breathed life into it by His Spirit, and He used it to transform us and continually is transforming us by it, then I think you ought to bring it. I mean, I think it deserves a little bit of enthusiasm. So here we go. Our mantra for 2011 was this. I'll start it, you finish it. Know the word? A plus. That was great. Know the word, live the word. We built everything around it. We offered classes around it, and we'll talk about that at the end of the service today. We offered resources for it. We went out and researched study Bibles. We bought a couple hundred of these Reformation study Bibles because we feel like, you know what, they best represent who we are as a people and who we are theologically, and we put them on sale at our cost, $25. I want to say to you now what I said all last year. If you don't have one and you need a Bible or you'd like to get one of these and be literally on the same page, same translation, playing along out of the same playbook as all the rest of us, go get one today if this is your church. If you don't have $25, pay what you can. If you can't pay anything and this is your church, take it. We want our people to have the Word of God in their hands. We put the words on the screens for our guests and visitors, and our hope is that they will join us in the journey and get one of these Bibles for themselves and begin to use it. I started 99% of my messages last week, last year with this phrase. You ready? You know what it is. If you have your Bibles and? Yeah, a little less enthusiasm on that one. But yeah, not to nag you, really, but because I hope you do. I want you to learn to navigate it. I want you to get a feel for it, for it is life. Know the Word Live the Word. Every sermon series we did last year was really oriented out of know the Word, live the Word, and basically was just foundations of the Christian faith, building blocks that are the fundamentals of following Jesus kind of things. We started out studying all the way through the book of Colossians, and what was it called? Know the Word, live the Word. What are we talking about? The centrality of the Word in our lives and the reality that God didn't give us His Word merely to inform us. We don't go to the Bible for information transfer. We go to the Bible for spiritual formation. That's the kind of transfer we're to get. Know the Word, live the Word. 
God's Word, God's will in my life. What does God's Word have to say about how I can come to know what God's will is for my life? Why? So that I can write it down and, you know, it's just, hey, that was an interesting little thing from God. No, so that I can do it, so that I can live it. We talked about God's Word in prayer. We went through the whole book of James, God's Word in my everyday life. And we called it that because He chooses all these issues right out of our everyday life. And we said, here's what God's Word says about this, now live it. Here's what God's Word says about this, now live it, and so forth, all the way through. Last year, we climaxed really the year in many ways before the Christmas season with a series of messages that we called Leverage Your Life, God's Word, and a Generous Life. Generous living. And we talked about putting it all in the bag. Time in the bag, talent in the bag, treasure in the bag, everything else in the bag. Once it's in the bag, we get in the bag. We close the bag up over the top of our head with a shiny red bow. I go with red, go with whatever color you like. It's your personality, that's in the bag, so use it. Grab it, hop it over to the feet of Jesus and deposit it there. How? Begrudgingly, regretfully, no, joyfully. As an act of worship in response to the gospel, saying to our Lord, our Savior, our King, hey, you know what? You deserve more than this, but this is all I got. So here, do with it what you will. And he divides loaves and fishes. He does great things with little things. And as one small part of that much larger effort, we were able to raise in pledges and cash and in-kind gifts what we believe to be all the money that we're going to need to purchase and renovate a property that we're going to call the Rio House, and that's going to stand, I hope, for the glory of Christ in this community in the aid of homeless single moms for decades to come. That is an awesome thing, and we'll roll out more information as we have to give it to you. But my point is, I know that 2011 was a difficult year personally for a lot of us, but corporately as a body, it was a year in which God, I think, did great things. And it's a year that we now stand on as we move forward. One of the other things that I said, and I said it repeatedly last year, was that know the word, live the word is not really a one-year goal. It's not like it was a novel idea when we came up with it, we found the Bible and went, oh, let's study this, you know, and like, we can live this, this would be cool. No, we've always done that. So it wasn't novel at the time, it just became a more strategic point of emphasis for us. But then I also said it's not something that we ever really finish In other words, there's no time coming in the future, either today or, you know, five years from now, where somebody's going to discover the Bible and come to us and go, hey, um, maybe we should know and live this, and we'll say, that's so five years ago, you know? I mean, that was 2011. We can pull out our checklist and see, know the Word, live the Word. We checked that off. We did that. That was then, and this is now. Know the Word, live the Word is the unending pursuit of the Christian life in many ways, and here's why. Because it is by knowing and living the written Word of God that we come to know the living Word of God, who as we'll see today is Jesus Christ, and that our lives are ever more transformed and begin to look ever, ever more like His. So we're going to know the Word and live the Word again this year, but as Matt said, our focus in the written Word of God is going to be the living Word who is Jesus. So we're going to orient our time really around a study of the person of Christ. Again, we're going to begin today with the study of the Gospel of John. It's the most ambitious study that we've done just at least in terms of its length. It will be most of this year we are going to work our way from verse 1 to last verse of the whole book on Sunday mornings. And I'm really pumped about that. And I hope that you are too. 
We're going to dig into the life of Jesus, to the teachings of Jesus, to the sufferings of Jesus, to the death of Jesus, to the burial of Jesus, to the resurrection of Jesus, to the glory of Jesus as we find it in that great book on Sunday mornings. But then the other resources, and we'll roll them out as we go that we're going to be offering, are also going to be oriented around finding Christ in His Word. And one of the ones that I'm excited about is that we're going to have a good friend of mine, Dr. Warren Gage, who's an Old Testament professor at Knox Theological Seminary, come, and he's going to teach a class here on Sunday morning that we're also going to make available online. And it's going to be on the sufferings and glory of Christ as we see it not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. And why are we doing that? Because we want to give you really cool information. No. We're doing that because we want you to be formed and shaped and transformed by the glories of Christ as we see it in the entirety of the written Word of God, all of which and everywhere exalt and lift Him up and speak of Him. So know the Word, live the Word, but know it that you might know the living Word and that your life might begin to look ever more like Him. So to that end this morning, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, but I won't give you too hard of a time if you don't, all right? Get one if you don't. How about that? If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, then turn to John chapter 1 this morning, where John is going to begin a conversation with us about the living Word of God, who is Christ, as he'll show us today. And he begins his conversation with a very significant phrase. He comes to us, and right out of the gate, he says, in the beginning, don't go any further. Pause, stop, don't move any further in his gospel. I've said this a 100,000 times, and I'm going to say it 500,000 more. The Bible is not made to be read quickly. It's made to be read slowly. The Bible is not McDonald's. It's Ruth's Chris. Hey, I'm serious. It's not Burger King. It's Morton Steakhouse. It's not Arby's. It's the Blue Moon Fish Company. It's not Wendy's or Taco Bell. It's Cafe Vico. It is fine dining. The Bible is not something that you pay very little for. Think about that. And that you just kind of drive through and pick up in the midst of the rest of the madness of your life. That you grab out of some paper bag and swallow down in four bites, barely chewing, barely tasting, barely noticing, half of what you've ingesting and dropping nine-tenths of your fries between your seat. That's not it. The Bible is a costly meal. Costs you your time. Costs you your energy. Costs you your effort. Costs you your life. That's what it asks of you. But it's also what it gives to you. You know, sit-down meals are the most enjoyable meals, aren't they? They're pricey, but they're great. The Bible is a meal that you sit down to and you take in course by course, bite by bite, morsel by morsel, word by word, phrase by phrase, thought by thought, image by image, for there are all kinds of metaphorical images in the Scripture that need to be unpacked. They need to be chewed upon. They need to be savored slowly. They need to be swallowed in such a way as it's not going to kill you because it's too big and you choke. They need to be digested, and you need to give them time to digest. 
But as they do, they filter in to your bloodstream, if you will, to your being, and they nourish you, and they empower you, and they transform you. And just like any other sit-down, big-time, five- or seven-course, fine-dining experience that someone takes you out to, and you get to enjoy... The biblical writers, by, through the feast of their words, bite by bite, morsel by morsel, invite you into a dialogue with them. I mean, part of the beauty of a sit-down dinner is the conversation. It's the people. And in this case, it's the Apostle John. The Holy Spirit through John comes to you in this book and bite by bite, morsel by morsel, lays before you a sumptuous feast and invites you into a give-and-take dialogue about the living Word of God, who is the person of Jesus Christ Himself. That's the topic. And the first little bit that He puts on your plate are these three words. He says, in the beginning. In the beginning. And if you're actually sitting down at the dinner table with John, as opposed to just driving through, then you're going to stop and think about those words. And you're going to realize, hey, you know what? Those are some of the most famous words ever uttered. I mean, that's a familiar statement in the beginning. John starts his gospel with these three words, in the beginning. Where else have I heard in the beginning? You've heard in the beginning. Well, that's the first three words of the Bible itself. You've heard in the beginning at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Listen to what Moses says in Genesis 1-1, because that's where your mind should travel as you don't eat it like a Big Mac you know, family value meal. But as you taste the appetizer, Genesis 1-1, Moses says this, in the beginning. There it is. But then what else does he say? He says, in the beginning, God did what? Created the heavens and the earth. And so what is John doing by intentionally placing this first morsel of food on your plate called in the beginning? He's calling you back to the beginning of the Bible, to where it also says in the beginning, and then lays out the creation story. He wants to have a conversation with you about the living word who is Christ, and he wants you to begin to consider the living word who is Christ in light of the God of creation. So what's the story of creation? Because that's how you savor these bites. Moses says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he tells us what the earth looked like. That's important. says the earth was without form. Now, that's something I think we can relate to. The word means disorder. It means chaos. He's saying the earth was in a perpetual state of chaos. Can you relate to that? No? I mean, we just finished Christmas. Really? No, I've got it all together. Well, great. Many of our lives are in a perpetual state of chaos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form. It was in a perpetual state of chaos that it was on its own, by the way, completely incapable of ordering and making peaceful. And then he says, and it was void, meaning that it was utterly empty and incapable of filling itself. Can you relate to that, emptiness? Probably not. And then he says, and darkness, hang on to that, was over the face of the deep. So now what does the earth look like? It's dark, it's dead, it's formless, and it's void. And what does the Lord God do in that story? Well, if you know the story, He steps into that state of creation, if you will. And He orders that which is chaotic. He brings it all into shape. 
He fills that which is empty. He shines light into that which is otherwise completely dark. In fact, that's his first creative act. Let there be light. And he brings life out of that which was on its own, utterly dead. But I think what John wants you to see more than anything else by calling you back to the creation story and going, hey, savor this, think on this, chew on this, digest this in light of Jesus is the way that the Lord God does it in the creation story because He does it by the power of His Word. He speaks, and it is, and that gives John's next morsel of food to us, makes it more all the more poignant. He says, in the beginning, John says, and then he says this, was the Word. See, now you hear it differently. And the Word was with God... And the Word was God. So now what is John saying about the Word who is Christ? Right out of the gate, he's saying, listen, you need to understand this Jesus of whom I speak is the Creator God of the universe. And oh, by the way, if what you need is wisdom by which to order the chaos of your life, or if what you need is peace that orders the chaos of your heart in the midst of the chaos of your life, or perhaps even both. John's going, I know who you need to talk to. I got your guy. If what you are is empty in a way that you're not able to fill it, at least not in a way that sustains and makes you full, well, then you need Jesus. If what you're looking for is one who shines light into all your dark places, that would be Christ. If what you need is one who can bring life out of all that has died, that's the Lord. But you don't get that in the drive-thru. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then on the off chance that we're still confused about what he's saying, he says, He, meaning the living Word of God who is Jesus, was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, to which he then adds, in Him was life, and the life was the what? Because it follows the pattern of the creation story. What are the first creative words of God? Let there be light. He says, in him was life, and the life was the let there be light, if you will, but spiritually speaking, of men. And then listen to what John says about the light of Jesus and just savor it for a minute. He says, the light of Jesus shines in the darkness. And then I love this. He says, and the darkness has not, indeed it cannot, overcome it. See, that should nourish you. That should embolden you. That should awaken you. That should empower you. He's coming to you and he's saying, look, there's no darkness in you that the light of Christ cannot dispel. And there's no darkness in your family that it cannot dispel or in your office or in your school or in your friendships or in your relationships or in this city. If we would only let it shine. Guys, the darkness does not like the light. John makes that point elsewhere, and we know that. That's why we struggle. That's why there are sermons on topics you don't want to hear, right? And I don't want to do. Oh, please, not, not that, you know. Really? It's light. Light reveals, doesn't it? 
It pours into our hearts and it shows us things that we would rather keep hidden. But light also heals. Light also brings life. Keep that in mind too. Darkness doesn't like the light, and that's true for us personally, and that's true in this world that we are told to go out and reach with the light. But it cannot defeat it. John says, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. And guys, it doesn't barely glow. It's not like everything's pitch black and there's a firefly 100 yards away and you're going, I think I see something over there. It blasts. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 6, John does what Matthew, Mark, and Luke all do as well. He records the testimony of a very significant man, this John the Baptist that maybe you've heard of or read about in the Bible. And he records his testimony, if you will, to the person and work of Christ when he says there was a man, and then here comes the key language. This is why this guy's important, sent from God. So now what is he going to do? He's going to come and give testimony, but it's the testimony of a man. No, it's the testimony of God through this man to this light who is Christ. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's John the Baptist. And this John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness. You follow? It's the testimony or it's the language of a courtroom. He came to bear witness about the light, but why does he bear witness about the light who is Jesus? For the same reason that we should. And he gives us that reason, that all might believe in Jesus through him and through you. And through me, he, this John the Baptist, was not the light. He's very clear about that. But he came to bear witness to the light. And then what does he call the Lord? He says, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was what? Was coming in to this utterly dark world in which we live. But to do what? To bring light. And as I was savoring that this week, it was really poignant. And I'll tell you why. Because I think that far from entering into the darkness, our tendency is to hide from the darkness. And here's why. Because we just kind of intuitively understand that if we're going to enter into the darkness as light, it's going to be hard. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be unbearably uncomfortable. It's going to be incredibly expensive. And that's true even within our own hearts. That's why we don't like sermons on certain topics. It's like, oh man, you know, if I'm going to shine the light on here on this and that, it's going to cost me. And it's certainly true with our world. Darkness, it seems to me, is overcome by sacrifice, by the sacrifice of Jesus, who is the light, but then by the sacrifice of His people who are called to take the light that is Jesus into the darkness of this world. We hide from the darkness. Our Lord purposefully, strategically, intentionally, and passionately ran into it for the purpose of dispelling it. John says, again, verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone, far from hiding from the darkness, was coming into the darkness of this world. Indeed, John says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world in its darkness is the point did not know him. In fact, John says, he came to his own, meaning his own people, Israel, the family of Abraham, those who had the Scriptures, who should have anticipated his coming and recognized him when he arrived, but didn't. 
He came to his own, and even his own people, John says, did not receive him. Did not receive him? They crucified him. But then he says this, and I want you to remember verse 12. Very important verse. He says, but, you see, he's drawing a contrast. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave what? Health, wealth, status, success, happiness? No, something far more significant. He gave the right to become children of God, a people who were born, John says, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, or nor of the will of man, but of God. It's a spiritual birth, not a physical one. And the Word in whom alone is light, this Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, or far more accurately than that, and tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is an incredibly profound verse. But not if you're just driving through. I mean, like if you drive through, you read it and go, oh yeah, I think I know that something's there, and you never find it. You don't taste it. You don't savor it. You don't get it. You don't stop and go and tabernacle. Wow, that's interesting. What's, what's with the tabernacle? And flip back in your Bible and figure it out. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was essentially a big tent complete with pegs. Seriously. It was a big tent and it had chambers and all of that stuff. It was a significant tent to be sure, but it was a tent that was built according to the specifications that God gave to Moses up on Mount Sinai. And once it was constructed, what did the Lord God do? Well, if you flipped back, if you've read, if you've thought, if you know, if you're thinking, if you're savoring, if you're chewing and you're swallowing and digesting, then you know that the Lord God in a great luminous cloud called the Shekinah glory, that word, entered into that great big tent called the tabernacle. And that tent called the tabernacle while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, was literally positioned in the center of their camp that was built all the way around it. Four corners, four sides, three tribes on each side. See, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was the place where God dwelt in the midst of His people in glory. So when John says, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's saying a mouthful. I mean, at the very least, He's saying that Jesus is not only the true light, guys, He is also the true tabernacle. He is the clearest manifestation and representation of the presence and glory of the invisible God in the midst of His people. But what's interesting to me, too, is as you chew on this image, you realize, hey, wait a minute, the tabernacle was a tent. So in other words, it was made to be taken down. And if you know the story of the Israelites, they move around, don't they? So they would strike their camp, and what would they do with the tent that is the tabernacle? They'd literally pull out its tent pegs. They'd fold and collapse it. They'd roll that dude up. They would carry it to the next location. And when they arrived at the next location, what did they do with it? They raised it up again. Do you hear that language? 
How did Jesus Christ overcome the darkness in us, the darkness of our sin? How did he do that? By taking it unto himself and allowing the tabernacle, which is his flesh, to be taken down in death. And then what did they do as he's hanging there on the cross dead? They removed the tent pegs from his hands and feet. They took him down and wrapped him up and carried him to his new location, where on the third day he was raised up again. But that's just not a drive-through lesson. That's something you miss if you're wolfing it down. I'm sorry, but if your goal this year is to read through the Bible in the year, I think that is a wonderful goal informationally. But it's not the way the Bible is meant to be read. So read it through so you've got all the facts in your mind, but don't mistake that for your devotional time in the Word. That will fuel your devotional time in the Word. But I don't think that will be your devotional time in the world and if in the word, and if it is, you're gonna miss a lot of its beauty. Verse 14, John says, And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, meaning John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And of course he was. He was before everything and everyone. He's the eternal God. And then he says, And from his fullness, from the fullness of Christ, what do we receive? Condemnation and... No. Grace upon grace. For the law that does condemn us, the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots that penetrate not just our outward actions, but our inward thoughts, our motives, our intentions, they kill us before the Lord and hold all of us guilty. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth on the other hand, by which we are forgiven and set free from the demands of the law came through Jesus Christ who bore the weight of that in his tabernacle on the cross. No one has ever seen God, John comments. They'd seen his works. They'd seen his power. They'd seen the luminous cloud of his glory. They'd seen visions. You know, that's recorded. But no one had ever seen God except for Jesus Christ is what he's saying. He says, he, Jesus, was at the Father's side, the only God who was at the Father's side. And then he says this in conclusion, He, Jesus, in taking upon Himself flesh and coming into the darkness of our world as a light, has made Him known. He's saying, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Christ. But He's made Him known. Why? To what end? I mean, as you look at all 18 of these verses, it's called the prologue to His gospel. What is the central, literally, as it turns out, point? All right, you're not going to get this at Burger King. And you might not even get this savoring unless you understand that these kinds of things exist. But all the way through these 18 verses, John is employing something that's called a chiasm. Stay with me. Stay awake. It's actually significant. 
A chiasm is that in which the, all of the statements or the ideas and even the words, if you will, that he lays out in an order in the first half of this whole passage, he then reverses the order of and lays them out a second time in the second half of this passage. So the idea, if you will, of the first part matches the idea of the second part or the last part. You follow? Second part, second to last part, third part, third to last part, fourth part, fourth to last part. Do you see where they're moving? They're moving toward a middle, toward a single unmatched statement, dead center in the middle of this unbelievably carefully constructed 18 verses. And that singular verse is called the pivot. And it's the most important verse. So John sets you down at the dinner table. He feeds you all of these morsels of food. And you walk away going, what is the central idea? Well, he gave it to you. Dead center in the middle of your conversation. Let me read it to you again. It's, it's verse 12. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That's it. It is altogether a call to come to Christ. That's why the whole book is called a gospel. He's saying, come to the one who is the invisible God made visible, the eternal creator God as a man, who entered into this world as the true light and the true tabernacle, who came and then took upon himself all of your sin, all of your darkness, and allowed the tabernacle of His flesh for you to be taken down in death and darkness, that it might then be raised up in light and life again. Come to Him and find forgiveness and light and wisdom. Let Him, through knowing and living His Word, begin to order the chaos of your life and give you peace. Begin to fill that which is not being filled by anything else, at least not on a sustained basis. Begin to shine light into those dark places that, you know, we're a little bit nervous about because it's like the light reveals, but the light heals too. And to begin to resurrect some of those things in you that have died. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And for those with faith in Christ alone, He gives the right to become children of God. You get that when you sit down and pay the price of the meal. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, um, God, which is life, and uh, which You have made so readily available to us that I think that it's become like a Big Mac value meal to some degree, and we take it for granted. And I would ask that You would forgive all of us for that. Lord, awaken in our minds and hearts a passion for the study of Your Word that we might not just be informed by it, however, but to be formed ourselves by it. Help us, Lord, this year as we come to Your Word devotionally, personally, together in our community groups, here on Sunday mornings in classes and books and all the stuff that we're doing, and reveal to us Jesus. Let us know Him 
better this year than we ever have. Lord, let us make him our great pursuit. Let us savor him and let us be transformed by him. God, that we might live lives that look more like his. The world doesn't need to see us, Lord. It needs to see him in us. And so we pray that you will make that so to your glory. We thank you for our Savior who lived and died and rose again, that through faith in him we might become children of God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.